Chapter Three of John Dean of Toronto. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. John Dean of Toronto, a comedy of Whitehall by Herbert George Jenkins. Chapter Three. Department Z. One. Mr. Sage there. Very well. Ask him to step in and see me as soon as he returns. Colonel Walton replaced the telephone receiver and continued to draw diagrams upon the blotting pad before him, an occupation in which he had been engaged for the last quarter of an hour. Since its creation two years before, he had been chief of Department Z the most secret section of the British Secret Service, with Malcolm Sage as his lieutenant. Department Z owed its inception to an inspiration on the part of Mr. Llewellyn John. He had conceived the idea of creating a Secret Service Department, the working of which should be secret even from the Secret Service itself. Its primary object was that the Prime Minister and the War Cabinet might have a private means of obtaining such special information as it required. Department Z was unhampered by rules and regulations, as devoid of conventions as an enterprising flapper. In explaining his scheme to Mr. Thaw, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Mr. Llewellyn John had said, Suppose I want to know what Chapeldale had for lunch yesterday, and don't like to ask him. How am I to find out? I want a department that can tell me anything I want to know, and will be surprised at nothing. With Mr. Llewellyn John to conceive a thing was to put it into practice. He did not make the mistake of placing Department Z under the control of a regular Secret Service man. "'I'm tired of red tape and traditions,' he had remarked to Mr. Thaw. "'If I go to the front, they won't let me speak to a man lower than a brigadier, whereas I want the point of view of the drummer boy.' Mr. Llewellyn John had heard of Colonel Walton's exploits in India as head of the Burma police had seen him, and in five minutes the first chief of Department Z was appointed. From the Ministry of Supply, Mr. Llewellyn John had plucked Malcolm Sage, whom he later described as either a ferret-turned-dreamer or a dreamer-turned-ferret. He was not quite sure which. In discovering Malcolm Sage, Mr. Llewellyn John had achieved one of his greatest strokes of good fortune. When Minister of Supply, his notice had been attracted to Sage as the man who had been instrumental in bringing to light, that is, official light, for the affair was never made public, the greatest contracts scandal of the war. It was due entirely to his initiative and unobtrusive inquiries that a gigantic fraud, diabolical in its cleverness, had been discovered, a fraud that might have involved the country in the loss of millions. Mr. Llewellyn John had recognized that this young accountant had done him a great service perhaps saved him from a serious political setback. Incidentally, he discovered that Sage was a very uneasy person to have in a government department. Sage cared nothing for tradition, discipline, or bureaucracy. If they interfered with the proper performance of his duties, overboard they went. He was the most transferred man in Whitehall. No one seemed to want to keep him for longer than the period necessary for the formalities of his transfer. Uneasy lies the head that has a sage, was a phrase some wag had coined. 
If a man wanted to condemn another as too zealous, unnecessarily hard-working, or as a breaker of idols, he likened him to Sage. The chief of the department from which Mr. Llewellyn John took Malcolm Sage when Department Z was formed is said to have wept tears of joy at the news. For months he had striven to transfer his unconventional subordinate, but there was none who would have him. This unfortunate chief of department had gone through life like a man wanting to sell a dog of dubious pedigree. In the ministry he was known as Henry II, and Sage came to be referred to as Becket. In Department Z, Sage found his proper niche. Under Colonel Walton, a man of few words and great tact, he had found an ideal chief, one who understood how to handle men. As John Dean had left 110 Downing Street with Sir Lyster and Admiral Hayworth, Mr. Llewellyn John had rung up Colonel Walton and requested that full inquiries be made at once as to John Dean of Toronto, and a report submitted to him in the morning. That was all. He had given no indication of why he wanted to know, or what was John Dean's business in London. Hardly a day of his life passed without Mr. Llewellyn John having cause to be thankful for the inspiration that had resulted in the founding of Department Z. Nothing seemed to come amiss, either to the department or its officials. They never required an elaborate filling up of forms. They never asked for further particulars, as did other departments. They just got to work. Mr. Llewellyn John had, once and for all, defined Department Z when he said to Mr. Thaw, if I were to ask Scotland Yard if Chapeldale had gone over to the Bolshevists, or if Wayton C. had become an orange man, they would send a man here, his pockets bulging with notebooks. Department Z would tell me all I wanted to know in a few hours. In his first interview with Mr. Llewellyn John, previous to being appointed to Department Z, Malcolm Sage had bluntly criticized the government's methods of dealing with the spy peril. "'You're all wrong, sir.' he had said. If you spot a spy, you arrest, imprison, or deport him, according to the degree of his guilt. Any fool could do that, he had added quietly. And what would you do, Sarge? inquired Mr. Llewellyn John, who never took offense at the expression of any man's honest opinion, no matter how emphatically worded. I should watch him, was the laconic reply, just as was done before the war. You didn't arrest spies then, you just let them think they were safe. For a few moments, Mr. Llewellyn John had pondered the remark, and then asked for an explanation. If you arrest, shoot, or intern a spy, another generally springs up in his place, and you have to start afresh to find him. He may do a lot of mischief before that comes about. Sage gazed meditatively at his fingernails, a habit of his. On the other hand, he continued, if you know your man, you can watch him and generally find out what he's after. Better a known than an unknown danger, he had added oracularly. I'm afraid they wouldn't endorse that doctrine at Scotland Yard, smiled Mr. Llewellyn John. Scotland Yard is a place of promoted policemen, replied Sage. Regulation intellects in regulation boots. Mr. Llewellyn John smiled. He always appreciated a phrase. Then you would not arrest a burglar, but watch him, he said, glancing keenly at Sage. The cases are entirely different, sir, was the reply. A burglar invariably works on his own. A spy is more frequently than not a cog of a machine and must be replaced. He seldom works entirely alone. 
"'Go on,' Mr. Llewellyn John had said, seeing that Sage paused and was intently regarding his fingernails of his right hand. "'Even when burglars work in gangs, there is no superior organization to replace destroyed units,' continued Sage. "'With International Secret Service, it is different. Its casualties are made good as promptly as with a field army.' "'I believe you're right.' said Mr. Llewellyn John. If you can convince Colonel Walton, then Department Z can be run on those lines. Malcolm Sage had found no difficulty in convincing his chief, a man of quiet demeanor but unprejudiced mind. The result had been that Department Z had not so far caused a single arrest, although it had countered many clever schemes. Its motto was, The Day, when it could make a really historical haul. The progress of Malcolm Sage had been remarkable. Colonel Walton had quickly seen that his subordinate could work only along his own lines, and in consequence he had given him his head. Sage, on his part, had discovered in his chief a man with a sound knowledge of human nature, generously spiced with the devil. As Sage entered, Colonel Walton ceased his diagrams and looked up. Sage was as unlike the sleuth-hound of fiction as it is possible for a man to be. At first glance, he looked like the superintendent of a provincial Sunday school. He was about thirty-five years of age, sandy, wore gold-rimmed glasses, and possessed a conical head, prematurely bald. He had a sharp nose, steel-colored eyes, and large ears, but there was the set of his jaw which told of his determination. Seating himself in his customary place, Sage proceeded to pull at the inevitable briar, without which he was seldom seen. For a full minute there was silence. Colonel Walton deliberately lighted a cigar and leaned back to listen. He knew his man and refrained from asking questions. "'They're puzzled, Chief,' Sage knocked the ashes from his pipe into the ashtray on the table. "'And they're getting jumpy,' he added. Colonel Walton nodded. Twice they've ransacked John Dean's room at the Ritzton and found nothing. Does he know? inquired Colonel Walton. Sage nodded. John Dean's a dark horse, he remarked with respect in his voice, and the Huns can't make up their minds. To what? inquired the chief. To give up the shadow for the substance, he remarked, as he pressed down the tobacco in his pipe. They want the plans, and they want to prevent the boat from putting to sea. Colonel Walton nodded comprehendingly. They'll probably try to scotch her on the way over, but they won't know her route. They'll be lying in wait, however, in full strength in home waters. He's a bad psychologist, added Sage, as he knocked the ashes out of his pipe. Who? inquired Colonel Walton. The Hun, replied Sage, as he sucked away contentedly at his pipe. He's never content to go for a single issue, or he'd probably have got the channel ports. He's not content with concentrating on John Dean and his boat. He's after the plans. That's where he'll fail. Smart chap, John Dean. For some moments the two men smoked in silence, which was finally broken by Sage. They'll try to get hold of John Dean unless he's very careful, and hold him to ransom, the price being the plans. "'Incidentally, Sage, where did you get all this from?' inquired Walton. Sage gazed at his chief through his gold-rimmed spectacles. "'About three hundred yards west of the temple station on the underground.' 
Colonel Walton glanced across at his subordinate, but refrained from asking further questions. "'Have you warned, Dean?' he inquired instead. "'No use,' replied Sage with conviction. "'Might as well warn a fly.' Colonel Walton nodded understandingly. "'Still,' he remarked, "'I think he ought to be told.' "'Why not have a try yourself?' Sage looked up swiftly from the inevitable contemplation of his fingernails. For fully a minute, Colonel Walton sat revolving the proposal in his mind. "'I think I will,' he said later. "'He'll treat you like a superannuated policeman,' was a grim retort. "'The skipper wants to see us at eleven, said Colonel Walton, looking at his watch and rising. "'The skipper was the name by which Mr. Llewellyn John was known at Department Z. Names were rarely referred to, and very few documents were ever exchanged.' Colonel Walton picked up his hat from a bookcase and, followed by Sage, who extracted a cap from his pocket, left the room and Department Z and walked across to Downing Street. As Colonel Walton and Malcolm Sage were shown into Mr. Llewellyn John's room, the Prime Minister gave instructions that he was not to be disturbed for a quarter of an hour. "'Was the John Dean report what you wanted, sir?' inquired Colonel Walton, as he took the seat Mr. Llewellyn John indicated." "'Excellent!' cried Mr. Llewellyn John. Then, with a smile, he added, "'I was able to tell Sir Lyster quite a lot of things this morning. The Admiralty report was not ready until late last night. It was not nearly so instructive.' The main facts of John Dean's career had not been difficult to obtain. His father had emigrated to Canada in the early eighties, but, possessing only the qualifications of a clerk, he had achieved neither fame nor fortune.' He had died when John Dean was eight years old, and his wife had followed him within eighteen months. After a varied career, John Dean had drifted to the States, where, as a youth, he had entered a large engineering firm, and was instantly singled out as an inventor in embryo. Several fortunate speculations had formed the foundation of a small fortune of $20,000, with which he returned to Toronto. From that point, his career had been one continual progression of successes. Everything he touched seemed to turn to gold, until John's luck became a well-known phrase in financial circles. Unlike most successful businessmen, he devoted a large portion of his time to his hobby, electrical engineering, and when the war broke out, he sought to turn this to practical and patriotic uses. "'And when may we expect Mr. Dean's new submarine over?' inquired Malcolm Sage casually. "'Mr. Dean's new submarine!' Mr. Llewellyn John's hands dropped to his sides as he gazed at Sage in blank amazement. "'His new submarine,' he repeated. "'Yes, sir.' "'What on earth do you know about it?' demanded Mr. Llewellyn John, looking at Sage with a startled expression. "'John Dean has invented a submarine,' proceeded the literal Sage, "'with some novel features, including a searchlight that has overcome the opacity of water.' The thing is lying on the St. Lawrence River, just below Quebec. Yesterday, he called to see Sir Lyster Grain, who brought him here with Admiral Hayworth. Mr. Llewellyn John gazed in bewilderment at Malcolm Sage. His eyes shifted to Colonel Walton, and then back again to Sage. But, he began, you're watching us, not the enemy. Did you know of this? He turned to the chief of Department Z. Colonel Walton shook his head. "'I haven't seen Sage since you telephoned yesterday until a few minutes ago,' he said. "'Where?' 
How? Mr. Llewellyn John paused. It's our business to know things, sir, was Sage's quiet reply. And yet you didn't report this to... began Mr. Llewellyn John. It saves time telling you both at once, responded Sage, looking at his chief with a smile. Suppose you tell us how you found out, suggested Mr. Llewellyn John, a little irritably. Does that matter, sir? Sage looked up calmly from an earnest examination of the nail on his left forefinger. For some moments, Mr. Llewellyn John gazed across at Malcolm Sage, frowning heavily. Sage has his own methods, remarked Colonel Walton tactfully. Methods, cried Mr. Llewellyn John, his brow clearing. It's a good job he didn't live in the Middle Ages, or else he'd have been burned. I'm not so sure that he ought not to be burned now. He turned on Sage that smile that never failed in its magical effect. There are one or two links missing, said Sage. I want to know where and when the destroyer will arrive, and what steps you are taking in regard to John Dean. All arrangements will be left in Mr. Dean's hands. He is... Mr. Llewellyn John paused. A little self-willed, suggested Sage. Self-willed, exclaimed Mr. Llewellyn John. He is a dictator in embryo. He happens also to be a patriot, said Sage quietly. Wait until you meet him, said the Prime Minister grimly. I have met him, said Sage quietly. I trod on his toe last night at Chu Chin Chow. We had quite a pleasant little chat about it. I think that is all I need trouble you with, sir, he concluded. And we are to see the thing through, interrogated Colonel Walton, as Mr. Llewellyn John rose. There won't be any... No one else knows anything about it except Sir Lyster, Sir Bridgman, and Admiral Hayworth. By the way, Mr. Llewellyn John added, our Canadian friend has an idea that our secret service is run by superannuated policemen in regulation boots. I know, said Sage, as he followed his chief towards the door. Goodbye, cried Mr. Llewellyn John. I'm sure I shall have to send you to the tower, Sage, before I finish with you. Then I'll spend the time writing the history of Department Z, sir, was the quiet reply. The two men went out, and Mr. Llewellyn John rang for his secretary. "'You have rather—' began Colonel Walton, but he stopped short. Sage suddenly knocked him roughly with his elbow. "'I have never seen the Mons Star,' he said. "'Can you go round by Whitehall? The horse guards, sentries, I believe, wear it.' The two men had reached the top of the steps leading down into St. James Park. Without a moment's pause, Sage turned quickly, and nearly cannoned into a pretty and stylishly dressed girl who was walking close behind them. He lifted his hat and apologized, and he and Colonel Walton passed up Downing Street into Whitehall. For the rest of the walk back to St. James Square, Sage chatted about medals. Seated once more, one on either side of Colonel Walton's table, Sage proceeded to light his pipe. "'Clever, wasn't it?' he asked. "'She's fairly new, too.' "'Who is she?' "'Vera Ellerton, employed as a temporary ministry typist,' Sage replied dryly. "'So that was it,' remarked Colonel Walton, cutting the end of a cigar with great deliberation. "'She was following us on the chance of catching any odd remarks that might be useful. "'On the way back here, two others picked us up on the relay system.' "'Do you think she knew who we were?' inquired Colonel Walton. "'No, just an off chance. 
We were callers on the skipper, and might let something drop. It's a regular thing, picking up the callers, generally, when they've got some distance away, though. They must have learned quite a deal about numismatics, said Colonel Walton dryly. A constitutional government is a great obstacle to an efficient secret service. It imposes limitations, remarked Sage regretfully. Colonel Walton looked across in the act of lighting his cigar. There are six hundred and seventy of them at Westminster. In wartime, we require a system of the lettre de cachet. And now, said Sage, rising, I think I'll get a couple of hours sleep. I've been pretty busy. By the way, he said, with his hand upon the door handle, I think we might get the papers of that fellow on the Bergen boat, also a photograph, clothing, and full details of his appearance. Colonel Walton nodded, and Malcolm Sage took his departure. 2. It's curious. Malcolm Sage was seated at his table, carefully studying several sheets of buff-colored paper, fastened together in the top left-hand corner with thin green cord. In a tray beside him lay a number of similar documents. He glanced across at a small man with a dark mustache and determined chin sitting opposite. The man made a movement as if to speak, then, apparently thinking better of it, remained silent. "'How many false calls did you say?' inquired Sage. Nine in five days, sir,' was the response." Malcolm Sage nodded his head several times, his eyes still fixed on the papers before him. One of his first acts on being appointed to Department Z was to give instructions, through the proper channels, that all telephone operators were to be warned to report to their supervisors anything that struck them as unusual, no matter how trivial the incident might appear, carefully noting the numbers of the subscribers whose messages seemed out of the ordinary. This was quite apart from the special staff detailed to tap conversations, particularly call-box conversations, throughout the kingdom. A bright young operator at the Streatham Exchange, coveting the reward of five pounds offered for any really useful information, had called attention to the curious fact that Mr. Montague Naylor, of the Cedars, Apthorpe Road, was constantly receiving wrong calls. This operator's report had been considered of sufficient importance to send to Department Z. Instructions had been given for a complete record to be kept of all Mr. Montague Naylor's calls, incoming and outgoing. The first thing that struck Sage as significant was that all these false calls were made from public call boxes. He gave instructions that at the Streatham Exchange they were to inquire of the exchanges from which the calls had come if any complaint had been made by those getting wrong numbers. The result showed that quite a number of people seemed content to pay threepence to be told that they were on to the wrong subscriber. "'What do you make of it, Thompson?' Malcolm Sage looked up in that sudden way of his, which many found so disconcerting. Thompson shook his head. "'I've had inquiries made at all the places given, and they seem quite all right, sir,' was his reply. "'It's funny,' he added, after a pause. "'It began with short streets and small numbers, and then gradually took in the larger thoroughfares with bigger numbers.' "'The calls have always come through in the same way?' queried Malcolm Sage. First the number, and then the street, and no mention of the exchange.' "'Yes, sir,' was the response. "'It's a bit of a puzzle.' he added. Malcolm Sage nodded. For some minutes they sat in silence. 
Sage staring with expressionless face at the papers before him. Suddenly, with a swift movement, he pushed them over towards Thompson. "'Get out a list of the whole range of numbers immediately, and bring it to me as soon as you can. Tell them to get me through to Smart at the Streatham Exchange.' "'Very good, sir,' and the man took his departure. A minute later, the telephone bell rang. Malcolm Sage took up the receiver. "'That you, Smart?' he inquired. Re Z eighteen in future transcribed figures in words exactly as spoken, thus double one three one hundred and thirteen or one one three as the case may be. He jammed the receiver back again onto the rest and proceeded to gaze fixedly at the fingernails of his left hand. A quarter of an hour later, Special Service Officer Thompson entered with a long list of figures which he handed to Malcolm Sage. "'You've hit it, Thompson,' said Sage, glancing swiftly down the list. "'Have I, sir?' said Thompson, not quite sure what it was he was supposed to have hit. "'They are—' At that moment the telephone bell rang. Malcolm Sage put the receiver to his ear. "'Yes, Malcolm Sage speaking,' he said. There was a pause. "'Yes.' Another pause. "'Good. Continue to record in that manner.' And once more he replaced the receiver. "'Vanity, Thompson, is at the root of all error.' "'Yes, sir,' said Thompson, dutifully. "'Those figures,' continued Sage, "'are times, not numbers.' With a quick indrawing of breath, which with Thompson always indicated excitement, he reached across for the list, his eyes glinting. "'That was smart on the telephone. Another call just came through. 320 Oxford Street.' not 320, but 320. Make a note of it. Thompson produced a notebook and hastily scribbled a memorandum. At 320 this afternoon, you will probably find Mr. Montague Naylor meeting somebody in Oxford Street. Have both followed. If by chance they don't turn up, have someone there at 320 every afternoon and morning for a week. It may be the second third, fourth, or fifth day after the call, for all we know, morning or evening. "'It's the old story, Thompson,' said Sage, who never lost a chance of pointing the moral over confidence. "'Here's a fellow who has worked out a really original means of communication. Instead of running it for a few months and then dropping it, he carries on until someone tumbles to his game.' "'Yes, sir,' said Thompson respectfully. It was an understood thing at Department Z that these little homilies should be listened to with deference. It's like a dog hiding a bone in a hat-box, continued Sage. He's so pleased with himself that he imagines no one else can attain to such mental brilliancy. He makes no allowance for the chapter of accidents. That is so, sir. We mustn't get like that in Department Z, Thompson. Thompson shook his head. Time after time, Sage had impressed upon the staff of Department Z that mentally they must be elastic. It's only a fool who is blinded by his own vapor, he had said. He had pointed out the folly of endeavoring to fit a fact by an hypothesis. That's all, and Malcolm Sage became absorbed in the paper before him. As he closed the door behind him, Thompson weaked gravely at a print upon the wall of the corridor opposite. He was wondering how it was possible for one man to watch the whole of Oxford Street for a week. End of chapter 3 Recording by William Tomko